How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child leave a movement? Hello Greta, anyone. And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make or break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make-or-break moments that make social impact so impactful. Now, something I recently learned from Parker Chapel of Calgary Pride, thank you again, Parker, for the generous patience, is that saying, hey guys, is really gendered language, so I'm changing it up. New start. Hello, friends. Thank you for spending your car ride, your walk to the bus, or your bathroom break, no judgment, with me. I'm joined today by the lovely Jason White. This man is uber kind, and he's believed in me. He gave up an hour of his hectic schedule to talk about legacy, purpose, and what it's like to move from the position of global vice president of brand for the infamous Beats by Dr. Dre to chief marketing officer of the United States' most, now these are my words, not his, courageous cannabis companies. Jason, 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 thank you for the mentorship, for the guidance, but most of all today for being here with us. Jason White, everyone. Hello. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Are we recording this? Yes. See, I didn't know that. I'm like in a hoodie. and. <laughs> no, that's perfect. I record it more just um, like for the sound to see if they're comfortable or not or if they're oh. like, eh. Oh, I see. You know, I kind of wanted to start today in talking about how we first met. We met at a conference here in Alberta. It was the first session of the morning. I had come off a conversation with two of my bridesmaids. I'd just gotten married about how my wedding was super white. And it was like this super painful conversation. <laughs> and you were the first black person I saw after that conversation. I just projected it all onto you. And you were <laughs> lovely and amazing. And I'd say our friendship started there. I think that's exactly where it started. You know, and it's funny because I think the presentation that I gave for Beats, I, I talked about how does the kid that grew up in Simsbury, Connecticut, which is a very white high school, end up as the leader of Beats by Dre, which is a very black brand. And I, I think in, in sort of explaining that journey, something resonated with you. <laughs> and I thought it was a really powerful conversation. I'm glad it was helpful, whatever way it was. But more importantly, I think we have a, a, an awesome friendship that, that came out of that and, and a, a continual dialogue. And I love the fact that as I've tried to you know set up ideas around CSR and social justice, you've been an incredible, you know, sounding board and, and, and guide at times. So I'm, I'm appreciative of you. Least I could do, honestly. Whenever I can help, I'm like, oh, it's like a grain of sand in the bucket of insight that I owe you back. <laughs> um, so like on that note, how did that come to be? I mean, you did grow up in a sort of white environment, end up working for a really black brand. Like how did personally, where did that, I guess, resonance start for you? Well, it's a long journey, but so my, my mother is Cuban, grew up in New York City. My father is African-American, grew up in Richmond, Virginia, both very family oriented, pretty humble beginnings. I lived in pretty diverse communities until I was about 12. And then when I was 12, I moved to Simsbury, Connecticut, which was, you know, very, very white uh, town, amazing town, a great place to grow up. But, um, and, and within that town, you know, we had 
black folks who either went to my school because they either bust in or they lived in that town as part of a program called the ABC program, A Better Chance. So we had a, a collective and a, a community of, of blackness, but we lived right among and with and were best friends with you know, um, everyone else in that town, you know, we played football, we played lacrosse, like they, we were deeply ingrained into the community. And, and, you know, I, I grew up with parents that always made me very, very conscious and understanding of kind of what race was. And they also grew up telling me you can be anything you want in this world. And also made me very proud of being black and very proud of having Cuban heritage. So um, it was actually, that was the easy part. It wasn't until I got to college when I was like, oh, like black people and white people don't hang out with each other. <laughs> and, you know, I went to Georgetown University, which again has an amazing point of view about humanity and culture and community. But when you, when you like really dig into the details of this conversation, it's cultural behavior. Friday night, are we going to the club? Are we going to the bar? Like that was the question I dealt with for four years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not that I was drinking underage. Um, <laughs> Never. But, but you know, like you know, we can have these conversations on these big lofty levels. But go tell a twenty-year-old kid every Friday night, make a choice: which ones are you going out with? Mm-hmm. And I literally had people tell me, "Are you doing the black thing or the white thing tonight?" And I and like that was it wasn't rude. It was like, no, we literally need to know: are you doing the black thing or the white thing? Are you coming with us? Or are you going with them? And it was, it, it bothered me and I, I almost actually transferred to my brother's school, University of Virginia, because University of Virginia has a huge black population and they are like, they hang together. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go over there, never deal with this again and just like disappear into the black community. And I, I had one night to make a decision because I actually was invited to transfer. Mm-hmm. And I slept on it, I cried on it, I prayed on it, and I just had this kind of realization that maybe this is part of my role. Maybe my role is to be one of those people that can bridge communities, one of those people that that has been fortunate enough to be in both spaces, and maybe this is something you just need to ex- take on and, and be a part of that journey and express that journey. And, um, and it was not easy, you know? Um, and I think one of the reasons why I tell people how much I love the Nike brand, Wyden and Kennedy, the agency that, that I worked on the Nike brand at, and even and then Beats was because through these brands, I got to get so much uh, closer to how I expressed myself, who my identity was in the black community, like how I got to like, you know, explore my own identity through the work I was doing. And, and that's why for me, it has been so fascinating. And that's why to be where I am now, 20 years later, um, 20-ish years later, <laughs> um, um, I just feel like all of that journey has made me comfortable for the challenge, which is you know, this, this issue of social equity, this issue of, of injustice, this issue of really trying to build an industry that has a past that it has to take accountability for. It's not necessarily our fault, but it is our problem. and and. Mm. Um, that's, I think, what what kind of got me from there to here. Hmm. Do you feel like, I mean, the social equity piece, I mean, it was kind of like you were pulled in two different directions for a long time, right? 
and not that you chose a side, but you got comfortable in your own skin and who you are. And what do you think sort of drew you to the social equity side? Like what was the tie-in? You know, I've always had a, a feeling of service in me, a feeling of, of social responsibility. You know, when in 2005, when An Inconvenient Truth came out, the film, I went straight to Dan Wyden, the founder of Wyden Identity, and I said, this is not a movie, this is a brand. We, what if you walked into a store and Ruffles had an Inconvenient Truth sticker on it and Lay's didn't? You'd buy Ruffles. And what if that sticker meant potatoes were local, packaging was biodegradable? What, like, what if you chose this gas station instead of that gas station because it had an Inconvenient Truth sign as you drove by and you knew it was, you know, oil that came from better, I don't know the word, mine, harvested, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, um, tech, you know, techniques. Like, so that was the first time I was like, huh, I'm kind of interested in this, you know? And then um, in 2000, I think 10, I went to, um, or no, 2011, I went to Summit Series for the first time. And that was the year they did some of that sea. And I was blown away, you know, to, to see a bunch of people that were just like on this trip to figure out how do we connect our resources to accelerate change and accelerate positivity. And I was like, wait, this exists. <laughs> um, and I came back from that trip. I went once again, straight to Dave Lore and Dan Wyden. And I was said, I don't want to run Nike anymore. I was a global head of the Nike business for Wyden Kennedy. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to run, launch an agency called Good Problems. And it's going to be a division of Widen Kennedy. And it's going to be where the little guy gets a voice and the big guy gets a conscience. And I was like, and that's what I want to do. And we started doing the terms to like start this company. But then our Shanghai office kind of stumbled a little bit. And they asked me to go back to Shanghai and run that office and sort of try to fix some of those issues. And then I ended up leaving and going to Beats by Dre after a couple of years back in China. So it, it wasn't like a new thing to me, you know, like I've always been looking for that lane and I've always felt brands carry that responsibility. And at Beats, I never nailed it. And it wasn't until, it wasn't really until I left Beats that I realized the CSR role that Beats plays, which I love now that I realize it, is we put black and brown people in front of the world every day and we put them in front of the world in heroic ways. You know, we don't put them in front of the camera to dribble a basketball. We put them in front of the camera to show their strength, their power, their, their, you know, their desire to overcome obstacles, their commitment, their dedication, their love of the game. And they happen to dribble basketball or they happen to throw a football, but we put them on that stage because of the, the power they, they give to their audience. And I sort of let my, gave myself some peace for that. And I kind of realized after the fact, like we were doing CSR. <laughs> um, but now in cannabis, it's like, okay, this is, all that was a good warm up. Now the, the stage awaits and this is really it. It's time to dig in. Mm-hmm. Oh man. It kind of reminds me of like, like when I first saw Black Panther, <laughs> Sounds hilarious. <laughs> but honestly, it was the first time that I had seen, um, like in a movie. I came out and I was like, like, oh my god, I'm so proud. Like it's because 
And it was because it was the first time I'd, I'd seen, um, like African culture painted in a really beautiful celebratory yeah. way. It's kind of what you're saying, right? Like it's, it's a yeah. celebration. You, of, you know, um, let me tell you the interesting story for me. The, the first time or the only time I went to Africa was for the 2010 world cup. It was Nike's, it was South Africa's huge coming out party. It was Africa's coming out party. And it was Nike's really big moment as well. Again, I was at that point running the Nike business for Wyden. And it was the first time I walked around. I was like, the owner of the club is black. The waiter's black. The rich guy popping bottles is black. The guy cleaning up the, the trash is black. The waitress is black. Everybody's black. And I was like, wow, I've never seen this before. Like, everybody's black. It's, it's not a thing. And, you know, it's just, there's just rich people, poor people, good people, bad people. And we're all just people, you know? And that was a really empowering moment for me to, to get a sense of there are, there are other, there, there's, there's, there's other textures and there's other sort of layers to this dialogue, you know? Um, and it just kind of gave me a lot of self-confidence and, and a lot of, I fell in love with, with Africa, just seeing like, wow, like this is dope. Like this is just life, <laughs> yeah. you know? It pulls it out of that context. And, yeah. so and I think that, that was also somewhat naive because we understand all the different levels of, of racism and colorism and all that. But, but it was, you know, it was, it was the right moment for me at the right time. Mm -hmm. You kind of walk into it for, for, with fresh eyes. You don't have all the background, you don't have all the context, but you're walking into it just experiencing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so where you were saying, you know, Beats was the warm up to CSR and sort of social equity conversation. Where does that, what's the vision with Leaf? Well, you know, we're, we're, we're writing it now. Um, Leaf has always cared about this topic and we needed to get all the pieces of the puzzle in place to then really start to do the hard work. And I think Joe Lasardi, our, our CEO and, and Boris Jordan, our chairman, um, and they are the co-founders, you know, they, uh, they were very clear that there's a lane for this and there's a voice for this. We have to do it right. We have to, you know, be respectful of all stakeholders, but there is absolutely a lane to do this. And the other thing that um, is just so important is, you know, we're the, we're the most visible, we're the biggest in America. With that comes tremendous responsibility. You cannot rush into knee-jerk reactions or, or thinking you're going to change it all overnight. Like we're trying to build, you know, systemic change. We're trying to think about how business models change, how, mm -hmm. how you can empower not one person, but a hundred people, a thousand people. You're like it's, it's a, it's a way bigger dialogue. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes we'll get hit for that because people expect like, well, what's Cureleaf doing? What's Cureleaf doing? And it's like, it's not that easy, you know. Um, we are we're committed to it, and we just hired Khadija Tribble in February, who is amazing. Who I believe you've met and yeah, interviewed you know, her she, last week. She, she comes with a lifetime of you know activism, of you know of of study, and she went to the Kennedy School at Harvard. Like she is a scholar in this space. She's an activist in this space, mm -hmm. and she and I, along with Joe, are 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 mapping this journey out and. You know, I think what has happened in America 
with George Floyd and with now the riots has, has sort of caused a bit of an, you know, need to expedite, but, but we were well on the path and, and, you know, we're actually having a town hall today um, with our employees to sort of let people be heard and then talk about where we're going with our diversity equity inclusion initiative. And then after that, we're going to start really getting into how we start to um, share our, our vision on social equity. I've always found, and this is something that I think why, I mean, I continue to come to you for advice and guidance is you've really found a way to be courageous and have a voice and have opinions. It's interesting because in corporate, large corporate environments, you often don't get to do that. There's a lot of sacrifice that tends to happen in corporate environments because like you said, there's a lot of stakeholders involved. And what I love about Khadija, and when, and we talked about this, as I had said, big companies don't hire activists. They don't. Like they might brand with activists, but they don't bring them to the leadership table. There's right. a whole level of accountability. So how have you found, like throughout your career, have you always been able to have strong opinions you know, stand up for what you believe in. And I'm sure there's sacrifices you've also made along the way. You know, we all play the game. But what has that looked like for you? Um, you know, I think I got some really good advice from a guy named Spence Kramer, who I was living in Shanghai. I had just been told I was being promoted to come home to run Nike Global for Wyden. And the, the, the guy who was currently running Nike Global, who was going to be moving over to run Coca-Cola, he called me. And he said, you know, can I just give you some advice before you step into this role? And I said, sure. And he said, uh, he said, your highs are a little high and your lows are a little low. <laughs> he said, I think you need to learn more how to be in the middle. And he said, I think for the level you're about to step into, I think you could really use that advice. And if you can master that advice, I think you could be an incredible leader. And those words have never left me. And because I'm an emotional guy, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm my mother's son. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Cuban. We, my friends from high school used to call my mom a Cuban firecracker. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, I am emotional and I, and I do, I'm an, an empath, you know, to the core. But, you know, getting that advice at the right time, you know, if you extrapolate that out to all types of topics and conversations, I'm always going to be someone that, thinks through the, the, the vantage point of the little guy that thinks through how can we create big change that thinks through what's, you know, the rebellion point of view. But I think um, what I've learned from that advice and, and throughout life, but really like that moment where he like gave it to me straight was just, you know, thinking about the bigger picture, thinking about the bigger goal, thinking about, you know, winning the, the marathon, not the first mile of the marathon. Um, and it's something I have to be reminded of and I have to remind myself of, especially at times like now when, you know, for example, this weekend, it was like, you know, what should we do about this? Let's react. Blah, blah, blah. And you've got a team that's fired up and passionate. And it's like, you know, let's, let's be measured about this and let's make sure we're saying something that's going to help the big picture in the long term, not make us feel better right now. Mm. And when he said like, you know, your highs are a little high, your lows are a little low. Like, what did he mean by that? Um, it, it, it meant that in moments of joy, I was probably over-investing in that joy. In moments of, of change, I was probably over-emphasizing that change. And in moments of defeat, I was probably over-emphasizing that defeat. Instead of thinking about 
how do you lead others? How do you move an organization through an emotion? How do you move an organization through change? How do you move an organization through defeat? You know, it's not your job to be the extremity. That's, there's other people in the company who do the extremity stuff if you're going to be the leader. And that was how I interpreted it. And that was like an overnight change in, in, in sort of how I led and how I reacted to things. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it's, man, I mean, like that's, it's funny that it's an overnight change. I feel like that would be a really hard change to be like, mm, I'm going to sit on this one. Like I'm not, I'm very good at taking feedback. Um, I think it's because I'm, as I tell my team this all the time, I'm, I'm a high school football player at heart. You know, my, my system is listen to what the coach says, fight for your teammates, work hard, dedication, sacrifice, win. And you don't win one game, you win 10 games, you know, like, that's in my code. I started playing football when I was six years old. Um, so when I get feedback, it's pretty easy for me to onboard it and adjust because it's, it's just like football practice, you know? Mm. You play, coach says you did that wrong, you do it again. Hmm. You know? Do you find the advice you've been given like translates into different situations? Like when someone's giving you advice about winning 10 games and you're at one company, you know, you're, at, you're, you're doing Nike at that time and then you're taking that to Beats or to Kira, like have you, have you always sort of propagated that feedback along or is it always a shift? Well, I think I've been very lucky and I've spoken about this a lot to have incredible mentors. Mm -hmm. So I haven't had a lot of advice that I was like, "Mm, should I hang on to this for six months? Like usually it was pretty good advice. (laughs) And it was like, you know, I should add this into the pyramid of Jason. You know what I mean? Like um, this, this is probably something I should hang on to. Um, Now what I have found is when you try to cascade that downward, not everyone can adjust as quickly, you know, like last summer, for example, we had to make a change to our business and I had a room full of really talented brand marketing people who were like storytellers and wanted to do big stuff. And we had a problem at retail and I walked in one day and I said, guys, today for, 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 you know, until you get other notice, you are all retail marketing. Like <laughs> we have to go fix retail. And everyone was like, uh, what? You know, and like to, to shift an organization that quickly and to get output out of an organization that quickly in a completely different way um, is difficult. And you have to have patience. You have to understand that one, you're trying to move a bunch of people. It's not, it's not the company. It's, it's 20 people that all have to go through their own process, you know, or 200 people or 2000 people in Curious instance. Um, so, so I have gotten, I think some, some decent lessons about separating the way it happens for me from the way you have to coach it and and, and cascade it downwards. Mm, I feel that that resonates. Um, when you think about, and maybe like, if you think about this, which I'm sure you do, because I know you a little bit, um, when you think about legacy and sort of legacy of your career and, um, sort of as you've moved through your career and you know, this journey and the next, what does, what does it look like for you? Like what's a legacy you're hoping to create or, or is that something that you tie into your day to day? Um, I think legacy, legacy is interesting, right? In the, at the end of your career, it's this collection of things, right? Um, it's, 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 it's the, the thing that resonated and then that, that, that rose to the top, but, but it's actually a series of shifts, I think, you know, at least for me, it has been. In my 20s, it was do the, 
like learn the business and like just have like a, 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 a an absolute pedigree of the business right and i and i and i sort of said okay that's a foundational thing and i was very intentional i went to work for sachi and sachi i wanted to work on png like it was like this is where you learn the biz right and then from my late 20s and then like kind of most of my 30s it was i wanted to do the hottest work on the planet i wanted to do work that changed culture that affected culture that used the biggest names the biggest stars like I wanted to do work that people knew about and people that touched people and created action and change because that was how I fell in love with the business. I saw Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi playing tennis in the streets of New York City in a Nike commercial. I grabbed a tennis racket and ran in the streets, you know? <laughs> I saw Charles Barkley say, I'm not a role model. And then I picked up the basketball and went running out of my house, you know? Like I wanted to do that for people. And then, as I got into kind of like the last couple of years of late 30s, early 40s, it was very, very clear to me that from this point forward, I want to focus on leadership. And I think if, and I worked really hard in analyzing how I did at Beats by Dre in my last two years as, as global head of marketing. Mm. But, you know, I, I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I was very, very hard on myself on what went well and what didn't in that role. And I packaged all of that up. And when I went into cannabis, I, I knew very clearly that for me, legacy is gonna be leadership. And there are, there are chapters of leadership, you know, like creating change is one and that's kind of social equity and all that. But, but even more than, than social equity, even more than building this company or, or being a part of this team, it's, it's the leadership. It's, it's, you know, asking others to believe in a vision, believe in a journey to make the sacrifices that they all make at their levels um, and to treat them with respect and to bring out their best, most creative self and to empower them to do the best work of their careers and to make them go home and feel great about who they work for and, and what they do every day. That, that to me is hands down the most uh, interesting part of my career right now. And, and what I believe when you use the word legacy, what I believe is probably where I would love to land as a, as a, as the, you know, the story of Jason, you know, <laughs> my dad always repeats this story about, you know, when you, when you're born, there's a number and when you die, there's a number and in the middle, there's a dash and that's your entire life that dash it's going to be on a tombstone it's going to be on a whatever it's just going to be a one inch kink piece of marble that gets cut and what would you do during the dash and um he told me that 20 years ago and it stays with me and i think about you know is is what's your thing going to be and i and i really feel like at this moment in time and and, and also looking back like going back to china and building that agency and you know, Nike in a time of transition, Beats in a time of transition. I really feel like leadership has been the thing that I've been trying to, to, to do well. Not always done well, but try to do well. And now I'm quite focused on you know how I how I handle myself and how I and how I handle that that mm. responsibility. Mm. Something we've talked about a little bit um, is also dealing with the critics. 
how have you managed that slash dealt with that? <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's hard not to care what people think and it's hard not to listen or read about what people say. Um, and that's a, that's the personal journey for everyone. Some people are blessed with the gene of not caring at all. And like, I don't care. I'm going that way. Um, I'm not one of those people. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm a, <clears throat> I'm an empath. And I think that goes the other way as well. Like you, you, you care if someone feels that you are, are not enough or not right or whatever. Um, and I think that the, the, I saw, there's a great quote that I saw literally just a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, Oh, I've been looking at that quote my entire life. Um, and the quote was, um, other people's opinion of you is none of your business. And I think that's so powerful because they're entitled to have that opinion of you, right? That's their own space, their own existence. That's their own context. And that's none of your business. Like you don't need to know what's in their head about you, you know, cause you have your own context and you have your own sort of agenda and everything else. And, and when you can realize that other people's point of view of you is none of your business, you can sort of move past it. You know, there's nothing wrong with someone having that view of you. And you have to accept that you're not going to please everybody. And you have to accept that, um, <clears throat> that we we work in the business world like there's it's not you know excuse my friends it's not all shits and giggles you know it is you know there's tough conversations there's deals that go bad there's people who think they got the best of you there's th people who think you got the best of them um there's people who didn't like the way you phrased something you know and the second you can accept you know their opinion of you is none of your business keep it moving I think the stronger you are as, as a leader, as an individual, and, and hopefully the happier you are as a person. I mean, I think there's almost a balance there though, right? Cause I like, th I love that quote, but I'm also like, for me, it's like a, you know, a cookie that's just like slightly out of reach constantly. <laughs> <laughs> because meaning, the end meaning it's not realistic or meaning what? Well, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not realistic. I think it depends on maybe how, I always, okay, I was watching Ozark and he was talking about what makes you tick. And for uh -huh. me, like, I'm, I'm just a huge people pleaser. And uh -huh. I assume that, you know, other empaths are people who, you know, take things serious. Like, I don't know about you, but it, I would love to believe that. But the fact, from, from my perspective, I'm like, when people tell me I'm doing a good job, I believe them. <laughs> and then when people, <laughs> and then when people tell me that I suck, sometimes I believe them too. <laughs> so, you know, that opinion goes over here, but from your perspective, I guess, how do you get that validation? Like, how do you know, you know, you're being the good leader or you're hitting the goals when you're hearing, you know, when, and I'm not saying you hear this often because you're great, but like when, if somebody's like, you know, you slighted me or you had this opinion or, you know, you weren't mm -hmm. right in this way, how do you manage that? Is it just confidence? Um, no, it's not confidence because it bothers me every day, just like it bothers you, you know? Um, it's just, it, for me personally, it goes back to the football analogy. We're here, to, we're here to do a job. 
we're here to run this play, then we're here to run that play, and then we're here to get a first down, and then we're here to get a touchdown, we're here to win a game, we're here to win a league, we're here to win a division, we're here to win a championship. And you can't do that by worrying about what this one said and that one said and the distractions and the short-term focus. There is a bigger goal. So deal with it, you know, go in the bathroom and fix your feelings and keep it moving, you know, because it's, there's just not time for it. And does it bother me any less? Absolutely not. Do I have to like swallow a ton? Absolutely. And the better of a leader you are, heads up world, the more you have to sit and listen to this stuff, the more you have to let people express this to you, the more you have to take it on board and hear them and make sure they know they are heard, which means a lot of times you may not agree with the criticism you're hearing, but it's more important that they are heard and that their criticism was, was, was allowed to be delivered than it is whether it was right or not. You know what I mean? And that makes it even harder because you're like, oh, and you have to like really rise above the words and think about what's really going on here is you're a leader empowering someone that works for you, giving them a voice in a safe way. And you're going to take that feedback on as a leader, you're going to have a vantage point of is this useful information, not useful information. How do I filter this? And that's on you to know as a leader, but that dialogue is way more about that person being heard than it is about whether the words coming out of their mouth are right or not. That's really interesting. And I think if you relate that back, even just from the impact side of things, it allows, it allows you to continue hitting those goals. So I think that's sort of the balance, right? Like, do you take the time and adjust to all the feedback? Or like you said, is it about hearing that person out, making them feel heard um, so you can move forward and get to the next step, right? Um, I love that. I love that analogy. I think that's, <laughs> that's probably a good little <laughs> mantra. To... <laughs> I have a previous boss who I, Jamie, Jamie Kaza. Jamie, if you're out there. Um, but Jamie is amazing. And she, I, call, I called her on Friday and I was like, <laughs> crying. I'm like, it's a hard week. And Jamie's like, pull it together. But also she's a great <laughs> listener. So she, she said right. it in different ways. But what she said, she's like, you know, everyone's going to throw a rock. People throw rocks at things that shine, whether it's you, somebody else, you probably do it to other people too. Like you have to keep that in mind and, and sort of, you know, get, get the job done, but hear people out. So, um, that, you, you just skimmed over a, a very beautiful statement. People throw rocks at things that shine, you know, that's, you, you take a moment for that. That's the really, really special thought. Mm. Um, and you know, and I think she's up. And I, other thing I love about this Jamie, who I've never met, thank you, Jamie, I love you, um, is, you know, so it's not always, how can I make this better? Sometimes it's like, toughen up, kid, you know, like, welcome to the real world, let's go. You know, sometimes that tough love is the right love. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah, that's, that's real. My sister would say <laughs> otherwise. She's always like, just listen. <laughs> Anyway, um, tell me more about the decriminalization of cannabis. Tell me about where you're going. Um, you know, I think a big picture, we still see the numbers are, are still in the wrong places. You know, I think 2018, 700,000, 600,000, 700,000 marijuana arrests, 600,000, I think were, were actually charged. Um, you know, we're seeing in states where you know, cannabis is an essential service. You have people sitting in prison doing time. So the, 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 the inequity is still there. And I think what 
what we're really interested in now is, you know, there's a food chain, right? There's a food chain that starts with, you know, how do we reduce um, incarceration around this topic? And there's groups like Last Prisoner Project who are fighting for that. There's then in that food chain is how do we work on expungement and how do we work on getting people back on their feet? There's programs like the Possible Plan, which the Select brand launched, who are helping programs like that. Then you get to, okay, well, how do we equip our, these folks to, to re-enter the workforce and even re-enter cannabis? And there's great programs like the Hood Incubator who are doing work like that. And then ultimately it's, and, you know, and how, do we, how do we make this acceptable? How do, we, how do we make this the norm? And that's where leader brands like Cureleaf, like the Cannabis Trade Federation, that's where these types of companies have to say, we agree with this path and we're going to do our best to empower this path and to define this path and create, you know, not just space and time, but money for this path to be successful. So um, we have not determined how to address this pipeline. And some of the things are not for us to address, you know, we're, we're a publicly traded company and we have shareholders that we have to be responsible to for different reasons. Um, but, but we are doing the work of, identifying that pipeline and thinking about where we can help, where others can help, where we can empower others. Um, but I think it's all about the, the recognizing that, that this is the route, you know, this is the route and everybody's got to pick a place to, to make a change and to do something different. Um, and you know, there's some great industries like the minority minorities for marijuana businesses. They're looking for, leader voices they're looking for the big msos multi-state operators to step to the light with them and you know we're through khadija's work through my work through our founders work we're identifying the right partnerships and we're and we're getting in the game like we're, we're not in it yet because we're 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 writing the, the the path to do it well and to do it long term now that said you know we have what I love about Cureleaf is there are so many passionate people. I mean, this is a mission-driven company from employee one to employee 2,200. In every community we're in, these folks are, are, are doing incredible things. You know, COVID-19 was an incredible effort on everyone's part to stay open, to provide services at all costs, to, to just do an incredible thing for our patients in our community. Um, <clears throat> so I have no... I have no concern about as we roll this out, who's going to be with us, who's going to be behind us really pushing this thing. I mean, our, our team and our people are going to be doing this with just incredible commitment and passion. Um, we're still architecting it and, and bringing it to the forefront, but you know, we've made a lot of great connections along the way. We hosted a dinner. This was when I was with the select brand before Cureleaf bought us, we hosted a dinner in New York with a lot of big players like Drug Policy Alliance, Latinos for Justice, um, a lot of folks affiliated with the Black Lives Matter movement. And we just had a dinner and said, tell us, tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us what we're doing right. Tell us how we can create change. And man, they yelled at us for like two hours. <laughs> it was just like a dinner where you just sat there and like, let, like I said, let them be heard, <laughs> you know? And they- Like, I'll get one more drink. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, make that a double. <laughs> And, you know, and, and we still are, use that information and use those incredible relationships like Mary Pryor from Canaclusive helped us to lead that conversation. And um, 
it's been just so helpful for us to map that journey and understand who the stakeholders are and what their needs are and 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 why people feel they've been wronged or or, or the rights that they expect for their communities so um you know it's been it's it's a journey it's a we've been over a year getting building this and trying to get this thing right and map this thing out so you know it, it just it has to be done right hmm. Do you find when you're talking about systems level change and how much do you think, especially in the industry you're in, like you're obviously very passionate about culture and the role that culture plays. I'm just curious when you're talking about systems level change, how much of that is related to changing, changing a public narrative? Well, and I think the public narrative is just the overall perception of cannabis, right? It's the getting from the reefer to the cannabis. You know, and and you know, I was just on a panel last week for Ad Week Diversity and Inclusion, and it was a great panel run by Nadine Dietz, and you know, everyone from Mark Pritchard from from P and G to Antonio Lucio from from Facebook were there, and we had to bring three key takeaways. It was like that was the rule, and they had to be actionable steps. And the one of my takeaways to that audience, because it was an audience of marketers, was. Um, help us end like this this narrative you know like don't frown on when you hear your friend say oh i'm thinking about this job in cannabis when a recruiter calls you you know ask the recruiter well, what what initiatives are you doing in diversity equity inclusion you know when when you hear people make t talk um about the cannabis industry in a way that's not positive especially in the black community where there's already a stigma like don't allow don't perpetuate that don't allow that to continue like you know understand that there are people in this industry from Nike, 72 and Sunny, Widening Kennedy, Red Bull, uh, Cadbury Schweppes, Snapple, uh, Boss Water, you know, Kimberly Clark. These are, and that's just our company. You know what I mean? Like, like this is a very real thing. This industry is real. This plant is real. And, and with this narrative of, of damage and harm and all those things, that was the war on drugs. That was systemic racism, and that goes back to the 20s, okay? Watch Grass is Greener, everybody. Great film. Um, and, you know, when you can separate that journey from where we are now and what the future can look like, then you start to create change. And I think you, first and foremost, help communities of color think about this industry differently, like being a part of this industry. You can still join this industry, and you can still find ways to get equity in companies. Like, it's not just about ownership it's not just about like i want my dispensary because those are my reparations it's like no like ownership is ownership you can work in these companies that are, have tremendous growth ahead of them i always tell my team if cannabis was a baseball game we have not even gone on the field yet we're in the locker room putting our uniform on that's where we are in the timeline of cannabis right like and and you know it, there's still so much opportunity to come into this industry and to build a life in this industry, career in this industry, and to, and to build wealth and, and the creation of wealth for your community, for your tribe. So that's how I see the importance of the narrative and the importance of the narrative changing, because it's a barrier to entry for people who should be in this industry. Hmm. Was it a leap of faith for you? Like, I mean, you made this- 100%. It was a tremendous leap of faith for me. You know, and I was one of those people. I have parents that grew up, this is reefer, you know? Um, especially in our in a Cuban community and a black community. I, I told them at, at Thanksgiving dinner two years ago, you know, I, I laughed that I told my dad, I'm leaving Beats by Dre to go into cannabis. 
And what my dad heard was, I'm quitting Apple to sell weed. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that was my journey. That was my hurdle. Um, but they've been incredibly supportive since. And, you know, but it, again, it was, it was a great way for me to understand what everyone else is going through. You know, you, you got to do it yourself and you got to jump over your own hurdles. I feel like this is a conversation in itself, but we are out of time. And so I just want to say thank you so much, Jason, for your time this morning, for your insights. And um, yeah, I can't wait to keep talking. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here and great to see you.